If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hello all, warm welcomes on warm but stormy times, well at least they have been up in North Wales here this week anyway, to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the region's premier one person spare room based true crime podcast that seeks out and recounts tales of the lesser known and often obscure or forgotten cases from all across the UK and Ireland. Curating these each time is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, where it's as great as it ever is having you guys joining me here today, and I hope as you're listening in, then you and yours are all good and well. So firstly, thanks very much for the feedback about our previous show episode, The Princess and the Magnificent Seven. If you haven't heard it yet, then it's the latest one up from guest writer Julia Crane, and it's a fantastic tale. What an absolute badass Princess Anne is, isn't she? She wouldn't be using no bloody Pizza Express as an alibi at all. Fantastic stuff. There's some real heroes mentioned in that tale. And who knows if he's even listening. They never know. They might, he might be. But respect especially to my favourite character from the tale and Julia's Ronnie Russell. Absolute legend. Don't forget if you have a case in mind that you think would benefit from the enthusiast touch. Perhaps it's one that's long been on your mind or a local one to you. Perhaps it's even one that you've got a personal connection to. I have had them suggested before. Then by all means, get in touch through the show's social media or email and I'll get back to you about it. Next, big thanks to all who've gotten in touch concerning my recent guest appearance, if you've seen it, on Patreon's online show, The Show Up, It's Criminal Edition. It was loads of fun to do that I enjoyed doing and it was a good chance to get this long-awaited Ask Me Anything episode that I've been promising for ages. But like Prince Andrew trying to sweat, it just hasn't happened. I've had the questions that some of you guys have submitted for ages and a few of them got used and read out. It's just things like pandemics and lockdowns seem to get in the way but we shall get another one done soon, I do promise you that. Finally, thanks out as ever this time around to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs here going to Hannah Savage, Schmoots, Sarah Jane Jarvis, Brett Caldwell, Jennifer Hooley, Kaylee Williams, Charles Rubesomen, Neem Mulholland, Norell O'Connor, James Springall, 
Catsy and Christie, Forward Pass and The Jaded Frog. Fantastic, great names, eh? Or what? The last two sound like an album, don't they? I absolutely love that. Cheers, Muchly, though. Your kind support is amazing, is there, guys? It really does mean the world to me. Now, if you want to join these guys and get yourself maybe a bit of TTC shunk or, or like a Ken Barlow sticker or a Shambler Bollocks one, and certainly access to tales such as The Madness at Mother Max, Double Brandy Dan and Auntie Elsie, or Death of a Brighton Schoolboy, then just simply seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site. It's got the same show logo and name as it has here, so you can't miss it. Well, there's a nice shiny link within the episode show notes each and every time, so you don't even have to look it up, really. You can be straight on it like a purple-nosed ale gnome in a Weatherspoon's opening queue. Well, by the way, while we're here, something else I will quickly address here as well. I was asked recently why I begin each episode all like Gwyneth Paltrow and thanking everybody from Billy Big Balls to the King of Norway. Well, it's just simply the way I am, that is. For you guys to listen to the show that I do, it really, really does mean the world to me. And I'll never get above myself to not genuinely say thanks very much for that, plus the support that you give. Now the win-win with doing this also is that it just affords nice time for me to ease into the comfort of the episode narrative as well, so I can at least try and come across that I'm not reading from a script. By the way, I hope that doesn't shatter anyone's illusion, because of course I do, I couldn't remember half of the depth of the tales unless I had a script to work from. I'm not Rain Man, and I'm certainly no excellent driver, I'm fucking shocking at it. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I'm back at the keys for a tale that was originally going to be a part of a trio of similar tales within an episode. But that rabbit hole was deeper than the recession we found ourselves in now, and it's ended up making an episode of its own, one that was needed to do the tale some justice. Now I'm quite surprised that the case isn't better known than it is, given the gravity of it, but it is one that I've heard covered before, Yet, anyway, so I thought, I'm having that before one of the others snaffle it. No, I'm just joshing. Much love out there to the other UK true crime hosts. It's a tale that spans some 35 years in total. It's quite an unreal one as well, I thought, when I was researching it. Now, in a recent post on the show's Facebook group, somebody, and I forget, I'm sorry, I forget exactly who it was now, but they asked me if there was a tale coming up this series involving a nightmare neighbour. Well, I think you'll appreciate this one then. I'm sure that many people either have or have had one of these, or you know of someone who has. They're either the great unwashed who have no regard for anybody else at all, and they love a public row and a proper late do, or the crabby old stick in the mud who are like, stop this bloody ball coming over, or you're making too much noise, don't park there, and so on. I'm sure that you know the type. I haven't personally had any of these myself. The closest I've ever come are my current next door but one neighbours, who I don't know, but I'd rather shit in my hands and clap than get to know based purely on the music tastes. I'm talking all this jungleist, massive Wigan Pier bollocks, you know, we're trancing, we're trancing, piping house, all this shit, which is easily combated, by the way, with very loud Led Zeppelin or the Stone Roses or something, of course. I don't think that makes me a nightmare neighbour in return, personally. More of a guide to decent music, I see. Well, the tale this time around shows the extreme lengths that neighbourhood disputes can go to. 
and the sometimes horrific, unbelievable consequences that they can have that could almost have happened twice. Oh yes. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always folks, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode I've simply entitled Noise. We begin our tale in the Hall Green area of the city of Birmingham in the UK area of the West Midlands, an area that we've been to before for a Patreon episode actually, Enough Rope. It's a district in the city's southeast area with famous past residents of there being comedians I'm about to lose control and I think Joe Lysett, Tony Hancock, my favourite bit of trivia here being that Tony Hancock's catchphrase of up the bracket is a direct inspiration for the amazing Libertine's debut album of the same name, and author of Adam at UK True Crime's favourite books, and definitely more so films, so I'm led to believe, J.R.R. Tolkien, he of the mystical jewellery and the longest ever walk to chuck a bloody ring away. It's almost like a weekend trip around Ikea that, isn't it? 141 Hazel Grove Road in Hall Green a tree-lined residential street comprising a mix of council and private housing, was home for a number of years up until 2013 to the Smith family, 45-year-old carpenter Warren Smith, his wife, 42-year-old nurse Cherie, and their two children, 19-year-old Shanice and 9-year-old Lucas. An ordinary, unremarkable and respectable family who always got on with everybody, would help out where necessary, and didn't have a bad word to say about a soul. So in 2005, when the elderly gent came looking at the terraced council house next door, number 142, with a view to moving into the property with his wife and daughter, the Smiths were right out there with a welcome and a genuine air of interest, the kind that you have when you're talking to what could be your prospective new neighbour. Several years later, Cherie recalled, I felt sorry for him. He said he was moving from where the family lived then because his neighbours were too loud and he'd had words with them. He seemed nothing except a quiet family guy. A week or so later, the elderly gent, 64-year-old Harry Street, turned up with his wife Beverly and the couple's then nine-year-old daughter Amy and moved all of their belongings in, coming to Hall Green for a fresh start from the town of Malvern in Worcestershire. The Smith family helped them out with carrying and unpacking their belongings during the move, fuelled with communal cups of tea, and when the streets were finally unpacked and settled in, the Smith family looked forward to what they believed would be a harmonious existence with their new neighbours. And for about a month it was, and then the opinions started to change. At first, after only a couple of weeks, the Smith family noticed that whilst Beverly and Amy would always speak and be pleasant whenever they saw each other and they got on well, Harry Street wouldn't speak to them at all and he wouldn't make any eye contact with them. Now some people are just funny like that though, aren't they? But then it was other little things that they began noticing, what you could initially put down to a simple case of beat your neighbour, although why people do that as well boggles my mind, it does. Like the Smith family would make little changes to their garden, 
only to notice that Harry Street would almost immediately copy what they'd done. The Smith family put decking in, and so did Harry Street. They got a shed in the garden, two for two. And when they bought some garden toys, a swing and a slide for nine-year-old Lucas, guess what Harry did? Yep. So you definitely know something was up. Maybe not necessarily something sinister at that point, but enough to mention it around the dinner table, or while you're watching TV of an evening as a talking point. And then about two years after the streets had moved in, the family that is, not Mike Skinner or anything, one Sunday, police turned up and knocked at the door of number 141, following up on a complaint of noise. The Smith family were enjoying a quiet family barbecue at the time in their back garden, and after police had left, all satisfied that there was no problem, Warren Smith went around all good-natured to speak to Harry Street, thinking that things are best sorted out in person, but also smart in a bit, because if there is a problem, you surely speak to the person yourself first, you don't just escalate it out of spite, right? Street wouldn't even answer the door to him. Police attending to break up the noisy barbecue that wasn't was only the first in a long line of times that the Smith family came to the attention of police for antisocial behaviour, always as a result of the watchful eye of the same neighbour, Harry Street, except that they weren't being in the slightest. It got to the stage when whenever anyone would come to visit the family, any time of day or night, regardless of who it was, the police would inevitably receive a call informing them that the occupants of 141 Hazel Grove Road were having a wild and incredibly noisy party. Police would turn up, find no sign of it, have a word with Street, and then off they'd go. It happened so often that they soon cottoned on that these reports were nothing except fiction, and they stopped attending, so Street tried a different tack. He would still call police constantly, now claiming that he could hear the sounds of a fight coming from next door, or the sounds of a woman screaming. Again, it was all bollocks, and again, police realised this and Street was spoken to, although no charges were brought against him. But even this didn't deter him from the campaign that he decided to wage upon the Smith family, and his behaviour became even more torturous for them. Warren Smith now takes up the story. One night we were fast asleep and we were both jolted awake by a loud bang. It came from the other side of the wall by our headboard. Then 30 seconds later it happened again. The wall just shook. It was of course street. He had drilled halfway through the adjoining wall and was hammering a metal rod into the hole that he'd created to create maximum noise, all to keep them awake. Night after night he'd start hammering at 3am, telling them when they remonstrated with him that it was in retaliation because they were making a noise. And it didn't just rest with that. Cherie Smith added, It was sleep deprivation and it started to drive me crazy. Then the behaviour got stranger. We woke up one morning to him dropping golf balls on our conservatory roof. Then another day it was covered in bread we realised it must have been to attract birds to scratch around on our roof at dawn. As time went on, it consumed our lives. If we weren't experiencing the torment, we were talking about it. Warren especially became really obsessed with it. He was a wreck and ended up on antidepressants. 
he thought he was going mad. Warren recalled, meanwhile, that whenever the couple tried to reason with Harry Street about his behaviour towards them, and to be clear, there was no issue from Beverly or Amy Street, it was solely Harry, his reply was chilling. He'd say to them, You don't know who I am. You don't know what I can do. The Smiths complained about Street's harassment several times to police, must have constantly been back and to to Hazelgrove Road, and several times they gave Street an informal warning about his behaviour. Then one night, it escalated further still, Warren recalled. I was with my mate, and Street was there in the dark, telling us to be quiet. He then pointed a gun at me over the fence. I said that we hadn't made any noise, and he replied that it must be ghosts he could hear then. Then he told me I'd be a ghost soon. We told the police, and I described the weapon he'd pointed at us, but they didn't search his property. After putting up with harassment like this for five years of hell, and these are just some of the many incidents that occurred, there are hundreds more. At breaking point, Warren, Cherie and their children moved to another house nearby in Birmingham's Hall Green in July 2013. Now I always feel sorry for people who are forced out of where they live by people such as this. I can understand why they do go, but it still sucks that they have to, doesn't it? It's terrible. But it had gone much further than a row over noise by now, and even with the Smith family moving, and it being in theory the end of Harry Street's noise problem, even the moving house didn't keep Street at bay from them. Over the following couple of months, Street scoured the local area until he found their car, and now knowing where they lived, began targeting his ex-neighbours once more. Cherie said, When we moved, we thought we were finally free, but one day not long after, the doorbell went, and there he was. My heart fell. He growled at me, I found you, you cannot escape me, you don't know what I can do. So thinking, oh bollocks, not again, a petrified Cherie called police, and the officer taking the call this time was a sympathetic community police officer, PC Annie York. Now PC York looked back through the lengthy record of complaints both from and about Street, and decided to investigate further, thinking, why on earth has this guy got so bent about these people? I wonder if he's done something similar before elsewhere he's lived. So she decided to learn everything she could about Harry Street. What she discovered horrified her, and led to her immediately contacting the Smith family, warning them that they were in danger. Warren Smith recalled, Annie called us and told us to get out of the house immediately. She said that he'd had serious convictions in the past. Based on what PC York had discovered, an arrest warrant was issued, and on the 15th of October 2013, Harry Street was arrested at his home. But it was to be no simple arrest for harassment, get in the car and just come with us, that kind of thing, because when police searched his home, what they discovered led to an Army Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team being called, placing a 50-metre cordon around the property and evacuating 18 families from their houses on Hazelgrove Road for a 13-hour period. Street had amassed a veritable arsenal of weapons at his home. 
There were three illegal firearms, three non-prohibited starter pistols that Street had adapted to become lethal, a selection of gun barrels, a large quantity of homemade ammunition of two different calibres. There was even two anti-aircraft shells in the bedroom. Now the room where this trove was discovered was described as being a cupboard which was accessed from a door in the front room and that had been locked off with a heavy duty padlock with Street holding the only key for that he kept with him at all times. His wife and daughter being strictly forbidden to enter it. The walls of the room had been lined with a selection of sandbags and thick Argos catalogues that Street had tested his adapted weapons out on by firing into them and on a table in the middle of the room sat a gas canister, a viable fuse, and 30 grams of gunpowder. Street had been making an IED. When the device had been made safe and families were allowed back into their homes, police interviewing Street following the discoveries heard him claim that he was merely tinkering with the weapons and that it was, I quote, just a harmless hobby. But police didn't share his sentiments unsurprisingly because, yeah, Harry, like building a bomb is an everyday pastime, isn't it? And on Friday the 18th of October 2013, Street appeared before magistrates at Birmingham's Magistrates Court, charged with three counts of harassment, possession of a firearm with intent to endanger life, two counts of possession of a prohibited weapon, possession of firearms with prohibited components, possession of an item capable of being made into a firearm, possession of a controlled explosive, and possession of an imitation firearm with intent to cause fear of violence. Street spoke only to confirm his date of birth and address during the four-minute hearing, before being remanded in custody until a plea hearing at the city's Crown Court on January 24th of the following year. But he wasn't sent to a prison on remand. He was instead sent to secure Ashworth Hospital in Merseyside. It was somewhere Harry Street had experience of, because a secure hospital is somewhere that he'd spent more than 14 years, many years before, in another lifetime with a different identity. Harry Street had been born Barry Kenneth Williams in the Birmingham suburb of Moseley on the 23rd of June 1944, the younger son of Hilda and Horace Williams. He'd attended Moseley Church of England School until aged 11, when the family had moved, and he had then attended Wheeler's Lane Secondary Modern in King's Heath. The young Barry was a loner with a love of science fiction who didn't tend to have many close friends. Indeed, his closest friend being his own older brother Anton, a Royal Navy technician with whom he'd spent large amounts of time, a practice that continued whenever his brother was home on shore leave, long past Barry leaving school. Now by no means academically brilliant, but not as thick as a plank either, Barry had left school in 1960 and went through a variety of manual jobs, working at various points as a trainee mechanic, a lengthy spell as a pressure diecaster at Alka Hardware in the Short Heath area, period spent working for his father's own metal polishing company in the early 1970s, before once again returning to work at Alka Hardware. Now throughout all of these roles he was remembered as being a good, reliable worker, and though he got on okay in his employment with fellow workers, he still remained a loner with no close friends, 
and one who was not inclined to forge any strong friendships, instead preferring his own pastimes. And Barry Williams' favoured pastimes were guns. Ever since he'd been given the gift of an air pistol by his father, aged just 10, Barry had been fascinated by them. The air pistol had developed to an air rifle, then onto a shotgun, and ever since, Barry had become a weapons enthusiast, enjoying the feel of a weapon and the kind of Clint Eastwood macho status that he believed went with it. By January 1976, he was a member of the King's Heath Rifle Club, later joining the Brosley Rifle and Pistol Club near his brother's home in Telford. Being registered as a member of clubs such as these smoothed the wheels for him being granted a pistol licence in January 1977 that allowed him to lawfully possess a .22 pistol and up to 600 rounds of ammunition, followed by a shotgun certificate being awarded to him on the 11th of May 1978. Yet his behaviour when he was at the clubs gave cause for concern. A former instructor at the King's Heath Club, who wished to remain nameless, later told the Birmingham Mercury. I remember that he was a very strange character. He used to dress up like Starsky and Hutch. He wore a black leather bomber jacket and drove a Ford Capri. I can't remember exactly when he joined us, but he used our membership to go on and join other clubs. Things were far more lax back then. Once you were in one club, you could move around. There was no such thing as checks and mental health assessments for gun licenses. Pretty much anybody could shoot guns and use the weapons that the club owned. He walked into King's Heath Police Station saying that he wanted to join a gun club and they just sent him to us. But he should never have been allowed to join because he should have been proposed by a member. He was a very quiet guy and I think that the more senior members in those days just assumed that it was all okay because he'd been sent down by police. But once he was on the firing range, Williams had his own gung-ho way of shooting. Rather than take his time and learn how to aim and fire properly, it was a case of, I know best, go big or go home, his former instructor recalled. I'm afraid I have the unpleasant distinction of teaching him how to shoot a handgun. I will never forget standing alongside him. A few of us had set up a pistol shooting range within the rifle club after buying some Russian Vostok target pistols. He was stood nearby and I offered to show him the ropes. The process was meant to be very clear. You were taught to check the weapon, fire one shot and then place it down before repeating the cycle until all of the bullets were used. But he just stood there and emptied all of the clipper bullets down the range in less than 6 seconds. He would much sooner crouch and blast away until his magazine was empty. He kept asking us to buy combat targets, the electronically operated type where human figures dart in and out of doorways. He was never a very good shot because he couldn't be bothered to take his time. So when he wasn't blatting them off like No Tomorrow, the cowboy, as Williams came to be nicknamed, was also stealing ammunition from the club. His former instructor continued, Some of us figured out that he was not firing all his bullets. We all used to get a small block of wood which had 10 holes and a 2-2 bullet in each hole, and he was stealing them. One of the members said to him, Barry, you haven't shot all your bullets. He claimed he had shot them all and then just left. He wasn't the type of person to stop to have a drink or to socialise afterwards. The same thing happened the following week. 
and that's when we decided to watch what he was doing. We counted that time and realised that he'd only shot off nine bullets. We went to the then secretary of the club and said that he was holding back his bullets and that he may have been for weeks. They decided to search him but found nothing. Now Williams wasn't angry at all about it. He was very calm. He's obviously hidden them and a few of us were blamed for picking on him. What they weren't to know at the time was that Barry Williams had already been banned from the Telford club that he was also a member of due to unsafe practices on the range. He'd already caused concerns with club members by shooting at some Taylor's dummies that for added authenticity he'd placed wigs on, one time destroying five of them with a shotgun, but by June 1978 had developed into making his own ammunition at home in the garden shed and had been ordered off the range because his self-made bullets were dangerously overheating the weapon due to them containing too much cordite. The spent bullet casings were left flying six foot in the air, such was the force of them, and Williams was stopped from shooting any more with a very real fear of the weapon exploding in his hand. So now deprived of an avenue to shoot, but no less enthusiastic about it, Williams now descended upon a canal bank near to the family home, 14 Andrew Road on the Bustleholm Mill Estate in West Bromwich, where he would spend all of his free time firing to his heart's content. He'd purchased a number of licensed automatic pistols, which were kept in secure steel strong boxes that he'd built into the loft and into his bedroom, but he had also obtained an under-the-counter pistol that was part of a mass haul that had been stolen from a Birmingham firearms dealer several years before. Now, several other weapons from the same batch were later established to have been used in crimes and terrorist atrocities worldwide. And this was pretty much Barry's life then. He'd spend hour after hour obsessing over his guns. If he wasn't off firing them at canal banks or tailors' dummies, he was in the garden shed making dangerous, extra-powerful ammunition for them, or cleaning and polishing them. He even took to wearing a shoulder holster most of the time, and often liked to carry one of them around with him. He also wasn't averse to not firing the guns randomly at home. One occasion, a neighbour, Joseph Chambers, went around to remonstrate with him after Williams had fired a pistol from his bedroom window into Joseph's garden. Williams had also taken to making experimental explosives packed into empty drink cans, which he would then season up with nuts, bolts and screws, all the trimmings that are designed for maximum carnage when they explode. Now conversely, for someone who was as obsessed with guns as Williams was, he also had a real problem with noise. It became another obsession of his. Two reports from the mid-1970s show this and that Williams' behaviour had by that time become increasingly erratic showing the extreme reactions he displayed to even the slightest of noises. On one occasion whilst driving, he had deliberately swerved his car and caused a neighbour of his, motorcyclist Robert Brackstone, to crash his bike because he'd been annoying Williams with the noise from riding the motorbike up and down the street. No charges were brought against Williams for doing this, police advising Robert not to pursue it as he had kicked Williams' car in retaliation for him causing him to crash. Then a short time later, another local youth, Gary Phillips, had been outside Williams' house with some friends of his 
messing about making a strange high-pitched noise as you do when you're a youth, when William sprinted out of the house and launched Gary over a fence, again with no charges being brought. But the real grudge Williams held, one that he'd had for several years, was with his next-door neighbours, the Burkitt family. On several occasions over the years, Williams had been around to number 16, furiously complaining about the noise that he perceived was coming from their house. It was a too loud TV or too loud music, even the too loud plinking plonking as he described of an electric guitar played by the Burkitt son Philip, an apprentice printer. He would proper rage about it to the point where it occurred so often that it became clear to everyone bar Williams that it was merely paranoia and it was all a figment of his imagination. And indeed it was, for Barry Williams' mental state was deteriorating rapidly. After being caught firing an air rifle at children who were playing nearby, one neighbour of Williams who lived in Andrew Road later described early in 1978 finding Williams on fire in his parents' garage in an apparent suicide attempt which he foiled by throwing buckets of water over him, causing Williams to tell him, you should have just let me burn. Now he's not seriously injured as a result of this attempt, however, death seemed to be very much on his mind, as in September 1978, he took out a £6,000 life insurance policy payable to his parents in the result of his own death. He also began obsessing about the Pottery Cottage murders that had occurred in Derbyshire the previous year, a case that I believe both UK shows They Walk Among Us and Seeing Red have covered as episodes, and it's a truly horrific story that one is too. And he began to believe that people were talking about him, persecuting him and laughing at him, believing that he was gay because of his lack of success with women. Top of the list who he believed were doing this, and there's no evidence to suggest there was any basis for him thinking this and it was anything but paranoia on Williams's part, were the Burkitt family next door. Williams would sit in his bedroom at home night after night getting more and more wound up about this, and in the weeks following him taking out his life insurance policy, he was around there constantly complaining about noise that they were making. On one occasion in October 1978, an incensed Williams had issued a chilling warning to Philip Burkett after hammering on the door of number 16 to complain about noise. When 20-year-old Philip had asked Williams what he was going to do about it, riled and by that time long sick of the constant complaints, Williams replied, I'm going to exterminate you. Now, someone obsessed with noise to the point where he causes people to crash off their motorbike and attacks them because of it, clearly becoming mentally debilitated enough to make a suicide attempt, messing about with homemade explosives and having more guns than sense. It doesn't sound good and it's got trouble written all over it, hasn't it? But no one could imagine the sheer horror of how it would come to a head which it did on the evening of Thursday the 26th of October 1978. The following account is put together using recollections from those present that evening, and as such will feature the actual words of people concerned. Williams had spent the afternoon drinking whiskey, and had had an evening meal with his family at about 6.20pm 
but had been disturbed during the meal by the sound of the engine of Philip Burkitt's Triumph Spitfire revving loudly from the driveway of next door, as Philip and his father, 45-year-old self-employed builder George Burkitt, were tinkering away with the motor. Just before 7pm, Williams went upstairs and selected two automatic pistols with 14 shot capacity magazines, a large quantity of ammunition and a selection of homemade firebombs which he placed in a bag and then left the house and sat outside in his green Ford Capri. After several minutes he exited the vehicle and walked up the driveway of number 16 where without warning he pulled a pistol out of the ever-present shoulder holster and shot George Burkett three times twice in the chest and once in the head just above the left eye. George was dead almost before he hit the floor. Williams then shot a terrified Philip Burkett once in the back, then following him and stalking him as the youth ran for cover into the house. Philip was to be shot a further five times as he was chased through the downstairs of number 16 the final shot sending him crashing through the front room window onto the lawn. His mother, 45-year-old factory typist Iris Burkett, was shot three times, once in the head and twice in the chest, killing her almost instantly in the hallway, while 17-year-old trainee nurse Jill Burkett, who had tried to flee in terror as her family were massacred around her, made it as far as the front door, only to be shot no less than five times by the deranged Williams. Four of the bullets entered her body through her back, whilst a fifth passed through her thigh. Jill was ultimately to survive the attempt on her life, however, thanks to the dedication and skill of surgeons who battled for three and a half hours to bring her back from the brink of death. Not stopping to acknowledge the carnage that he'd just unleashed, Williams then left the Burkett house and went next door to number 18. The occupants of number 18, Judith and Joseph Chambers, were home watching television at the time. Judith, who was first cousin of Iris Burkett, recalled years later, I was sitting with my husband Joe watching TV and we heard these bangs. Joe went to the window and looked out to see what was going on. Almost matter-of-factly, he told me, Williams is shooting the Burkitts. I went to the door and there was Barry Williams standing in the garden pumping bullet after bullet into George and Philip who'd been working on their car. It was like watching a film in slow motion. Then he looked up and pointed the gun straight at me. The first bullet spun me round almost full circle. It was like being hit with a red hot sledgehammer. I was sprayed with blood and muscle tissue. I didn't even feel the second bullet although I knew I must have been hit again because I was flung completely off my feet. One bullet passed through my lung, liver and diaphragm, then out through my back. The other went through my upper left arm and out through my shoulder. I was told later that Williams had filed the bullets down, making them high velocity and causing them to pass straight through the body. Basically, I was left with one and a half lungs, but I made a good recovery. I had to just to spite Williams. One of the bullets that had passed through Judith had struck Joseph in the arm, causing a flesh wound as he attempted to pull his wife out of harm's way. Taking cover, he heard Williams walk away and then the sound of the Ford Capri engine gunning as Williams jumped into his car and sped off around the estate. 
Five minutes after he began his rampage, and with what seemed to be never-ending ammunition magazines like they've got in films, Williams continued firing indiscriminately as he drove around the estate. He shot at two children playing on a nearby patch of grass just off the adjoining Stanhurst Way, David Cooper and Troy Beeson, before sending six further shots through the windows of random houses as he drove past Hell for Leather, as one eyewitness later put it. One of these bullets grazed the arm of seven-year-old Karen Jones in a house on Stanhurst Way, whilst another narrowly missed a small child playing in the front room of his home, Stephen Edwards, and left him showered with glass. In each case, none of the children were seriously injured, however. Before driving out of the Bustleholm estate onto the A4031 Walsall Road, Williams reportedly primed and threw a firebomb that he'd placed in the car earlier, although at what is not known, but it is reported that it failed to explode. He then sped off towards Walsall. Now by this time, horrified neighbours were cautiously heading out of their homes to see what had happened. Having heard the commotion, an ambulance and emergency services had been contacted and were already speeding their way to the scene. Several neighbours tried to give assistance to the Burkitt family, not knowing the full extent of the horror, but it was to no avail. One former neighbour, Carol Grice, told the Birmingham Mail, I stepped over the body of a young laddie in the hall. He was lying very still. There was a lady lying in the hall too, and she was lying face down in a pool of blood. I went to get a cushion for her head, but neither of them were moving. When someone said they might be dead, I just went to pieces and had to go to a neighbour's home. Whilst Graham Chambers, the son of Judith and Joseph, years later recalled, I got a call from my uncle to say that people had been shot in Andrew Road and I raced around. I arrived at the scene and it was horrific, like a scene from a horror movie. We lived two doors away from Williams, with the Burkitt family in between. There was police everywhere. My friend Philip was lying dead on the floor with a blanket over him. I was physically sick when I saw what had happened. Then there was blind panic because my parents were nowhere to be seen. I was told they'd been taken away in an ambulance, but I had no idea if they were dead or alive or what their injuries might be. Our family were the lucky ones, really. My mother was seriously injured but survived, and my father was shot in the arm. My sister Angela was only 13 at the time, and thankfully had been at a friend's house. As the bustle home estate was locked down, the injured rushed to Birmingham General Hospital, and armed police placed a cordon around the area in case the gunman returned, cars with loud hailers touring the estate telling people to get indoors. It was almost immediately established that police were seeking the Burkitt's next-door neighbour, 34-year-old Barry Kenneth Williams, in connection with the shootings, and a description of Williams and his car was issued to all forces. Five foot eight inches tall, of slim build with straight brown hair, wearing a navy blue zip-up anorak with light blue stripes down the sleeves, a brown polo neck sweater, dark blue trousers and brown shoes. He was driving a green-coloured 1972 model Ford Capri with a black roof, registration number LEA808K, and was thought to be possibly heading for Telford, where his brother Anton lived. Armed with at least one, but most likely two automatic pistols, 
and an unknown quantity of ammunition, having just shot seven people, three of them fatally. How horrific and unbelievable is that, eh? Williams was far from done for the evening. He'd headed to the town of Wednesbury following shooting the Burkitt family and Judith and Joseph Chambers, where he indiscriminately fired several other shots through a barber's window and at two houses, again injuring the occupants of the latter with flying glass as the bullets passed through the windows. He had then continued on towards Walsall in the northwest of Birmingham, where he'd filled up his car with petrol at a service station there and had driven off without paying. As all police officers in the West Midlands were on the lookout for his vehicle, an hour after he'd first unleashed horror, Williams found himself near the Warwickshire town of Nuneaton, some 30 miles away. At another fill-in station, a total garage on Arbury Road in Stockington, near Nuneaton, proprietors Michael and Lisa Di Maria were working the late shift, where it would soon be approaching closing time. Described as popular and hard-working, the couple had run the petrol station for six years, which is still there today, although it's been altered to a hand car wash facility and auto dealership now, alongside their son Antonio, and lived in the adjoining property to it, above the Mac food shop that they also ran at number 118. Now that evening was meant to be 58-year-old Michael's night off, but he and his son Antonio had switched shifts in order for Michael to be able to attend the motor show at the National Exhibition Centre in Solihull the following evening. Because of this change, 50-year-old Lisa was keeping her husband company at the garage, save sitting home by herself, and was happily knitting. At around 8.10pm, she had just fetched a pot of coffee for them from the couple's home, when both she and Michael noticed the green Ford Capri screeched to a halt onto the station forecourt, and a man get out of the driver's side. He was armed with two pistols as he approached the kiosk. Michael instinctively picked up whatever was nearest to hand to throw at the advancing gunman, in this case it was cans of motor oil, and threw them desperately at him, but it did nothing to stop the advancing Williams. Despite him slamming the kiosk door, as horrified drivers who had slowed down and were waiting to enter the station watched, Williams fired two shots through the door that Michael was trying in vain to hold shut. One of the bullets struck him in the back, whilst the other lodged in his head. Gravely wounded, Michael clung to life before eight days later, on Friday the 3rd of November, he was to tragically die of his injuries. Having shot and mortally wounded Michael, Williams now turned his attentions to the terrified Lisa Di Maria, firing three more times directly at her through the kiosk window. Lisa was struck at first in the abdomen and then in the head by a bullet, killing it instantly. Williams then calmly walked back to his car, got in and drove off towards Nuneaton. By this time, police had already been alerted to the double shooting by horrified witnesses, and Warwickshire police, who'd already been informed by that time to be on the lookout for Barry Williams, were immediately on to West Midlands police, liaising and informing them that due to a description of the vehicle and the shooter that they'd received, their wanted gunman had just struck again in Nuneaton. 
as both West Midlands and Warwickshire police forces, as well as those of the surrounding counties of the two, now hunted for Williams. The officer who'd been placed in charge of the manhunt from the West Midlands force, Detective Superintendent Gerald Martin, the head of West Bromwich CID, once again issued the description of Williams and his car and told the hastily assembled flock of reporters from the armed cordon of the Bustleholm Mill estate. This is an extremely dangerous area to be in. Williams is extremely dangerous. We don't want any heroics. If anyone sees him, then do not approach him. Instead, ring police on 021-236-5000 or Nuneaton Incident Room, Nuneaton 328-431. News bulletins went bananas after this, as you can imagine, and whilst police practically all over the country were now searching for him, it's uncertain where exactly Williams drove to, although reports when I was researching the episode do suggest that he parked up in a wood somewhere and spent at least part of the night listening to radio reports detailing his exploits of earlier. There are also unconfirmed reports that he may have driven as far as Cambridge before heading back north and arriving in Sheffield through the night, but by 9.30 on the morning of Friday the 27th of October, Williams was certainly in Derbyshire, because members of the public had sighted him and reported it to police, who then spotted Williams themselves. Police were finally on his tail now, and with the Ford Capri in their sights, a terrifying, at times 100 mile per hour chase that would have put the classic one from bullet to shame, took place around the country lanes and rural roads of North Derbyshire, lasting for more than an hour and a half, and involving Williams driving so erratically that several times he collided with other vehicles in his efforts to outrun police chasing him. Finally, at 11.16am, Williams sped into Spring Garden's Main Street area of the Derbyshire town of Buxton, where a pursuing police Ford Granada managed to get alongside him and ram him, forcing the Capri to crash into a vehicle that was parked opposite a queue of cinema-goers waiting in line to see the film Grease. Williams was straight out of the Capri and onto the bonnet of the police car, where he pointed his pistol at the officers inside the Granada, Sergeant David Slater and PC Geoffrey Hollingsworth. Both officers, with disregard for their own safety, were straight out of the vehicle and confronted Williams, before being joined by the driver of another pursuing vehicle, PC Peter Bissett. At gunpoint, Williams then tried to commandeer the police car to continue his flight, but he was grabbed by Sergeant Slater and PC Bissett, with PC Hollingsworth disarming him. Almost immediately, as he was handcuffed, Williams asked the officers with a genuinely puzzled expression, Why didn't you shoot me? Told that none of the officers were armed, Williams was reportedly quiet for a moment and then said resignedly, I suppose that I'll get life. I've lost the game. I should have just shot myself. With Williams under arrest and taken back to West Bromwich for questioning, the Spring Gardens area was cordoned off and the Ford Capri examined by an EOD squad, knowing that the wanted man was in possession of ammunition and explosives. More than 900 rounds of ammunition was found still in the Capri, 147 9mm and 770.22 rounds in his car, the other .22 calibre Smith & Western pistol, 
as well as an explosive device that reportedly couldn't have gone off even if it had been thrown, as it had an inactive fuse. But all those bullets, can you imagine if he hadn't been stopped when he was? Doesn't bear thinking about, does it? When questioned later that day, it became clear that Williams's plan had been to put paid to the noisy neighbours that were causing him so much mental anguish, then go out in some sort of blaze of glory and be shot dead by police, much like the pottery cottage killer Billy Hughes that Williams had become so obsessed by had done the previous year. He truly believed that he was worth more dead than alive, hence taking out the £6,000 life insurance policy payable to his parents. But an insight into the rationale of the gunman became even clearer when he spoke about the previous evening's shootings. He had a hint of remorse and was as cold-blooded and matter-of-fact as could be, telling police, They laughed or pointed or did something and I got out the car to speak to them. I had the gun in my shoulder holster so I got it out and waved it about and said, Stop it, stop it, but they didn't, so I shot them. I just pointed the gun and kept pulling the trigger. I heard the noise and thought they were dead. It just doesn't seem real. They were running about everywhere, so I shot them. I shot everything that moved. They wouldn't shut up, so I shut them up. They were driving me mad. You would have shot the Burkitts too, if you'd been me. They weren't human beings. They were things. I know, right? When asked about the reason behind the shootings of the De Marias, Williams claimed that he was intending to rob the petrol station but changed his mind and simply said, There were just two more things in my way, so I shot again. At a special sitting of West Bromwich magistrates on the morning of Saturday the 28th of October 1978, a crowd of 50 people watched as a blanket-covered Barry Williams appeared in court where in an eight-minute hearing he was charged with the murder of Philip Burkett and said nothing in response as he was remanded in custody to Winston Green Prison in Birmingham by lead magistrate Ivor Hodgett. Here, three days later, on the 31st of October, Williams reportedly made yet another suicide attempt while he was shaving, inflicting a minor non-life-threatening wound to his throat with a safety razor that he was issued. During the time that he was on remand, before being charged with the four other counts of murder, and two attempted murders several weeks later, on Friday the 15th of December 1978, Williams was visited several times by his shocked parents and brother, who was later quoted after one visit to him shortly after he was charged, as saying, The whole thing was such a complete shock to the family, especially mum and dad, and everyone who knew him. We cannot understand why it happened, and Barry has not tried to explain in prison. It's terrible seeing him in there. He didn't want to talk about it. Perhaps he felt he couldn't. He has seemed relaxed though and just talked about the prison treating him well and the food being alright. The funeral of the Burkitt family took place almost three weeks after the shootings on Tuesday, November the 14th, 1978. Although the seriously injured Jill Burkitt couldn't attend, she was still too ill in Birmingham General Hospital. A bouquet of red roses sent from her did line the top of each coffin, however, along with the many floral tributes that had poured to the undertakers and to the scene, many of which were still evident as the cortege solemnly passed the family home in Andrew Road, its doors and windows still boarded up. 
Out of the 80 or so wreaths that lay there, the largest was a simple Philip from old school friends who will never forget you, white floral tribute. Iris Burkitt's sister Jill Hodgkins led a large number of mourners into the chapel on Newton Road Crematorium as the Reverend Richard Armitage led a move-in service in which he offered praise not just for the victims of the atrocity but also for the violent in our society. But if the Burkitt family service was large, it paled in comparison to the service for Michael and Lisa Di Maria, who were interred together in a double coffin the following day in St Paul's Cemetery in Coventry's Holbrook Lane. A service of more than 400 mourners had crowded into Holy Family Church in Parkgate beforehand, led in by the couple's daughter Elder, their daughter-in-law Anne and grandson Tony Jr., and their sons Carmine and Antonio who'd exchanged shifts with his father on the night of the shootings and who had had to be restrained by police on the night as he was trying desperately to get to the bodies of his parents, unable to accept that they were dead. You can't even begin to imagine how broken the families would be, can you? How absolutely senseless is that? Five months after the Night of Horror, on Monday, March the 26th, 1979, Barry Williams appeared at Stafford Crown Court before presiding Mr Justice Stephen Brown to face trial for five counts of murder. Flanked by six prison officers and without glancing up once at the judge, in a barely audible voice, Williams denied murder but could only whisper at the prompting of his solicitor, guilty to manslaughter, on the grounds of diminished responsibility. It was a plea which counsel for the Crown, Philip Cox QC, told the court was accepted. The two charges of attempted murder against Jill Burkett and Judith Chambers were also allowed to lie on file, as defence counsel Anthony Smith QC reportedly told the court that Williams had been examined by psychiatrist Dr Ernest Jacobi whilst on remand, and was found to be suffering from paranoid psychosis. He'd believed that people laughed at him, conspired against him, that people thought he was a general loser, and that he was gay due to his lack of girlfriends and success with women. His obsession with noise emanating from the Burkitt's house over several years, combined with this paranoia, had led to the carnage of October the 26th the previous year. Mr Smith told the court, Men are not to blame for illness that strikes from a clear sky, especially illness of the mind. Based on Williams's guilty plea and his clear mental illness, because who does something like this if they're mentally well, yeah? Mr Justice Brown subsequently ordered Williams to be detained indefinitely under a hospital order and he was taken to Broadmoor Secure Hospital in Berkshire. His release, he stipulated, could only be on the orders of the Home Secretary. Williams spent the next 15 years as a patient between Broadmoor and Ashworth Hospital in Merseyside, largely forgotten by all except his family, his former neighbours, and those who were left to live with the impact of his actions. But by 1994, he was deemed to be no longer a risk to the general public and was released, prescribed antipsychotic medication, and on the condition that he could be detained again if this were considered necessary. So where was he released to? To a bail hostel, six miles from the scene of his massacre, 
15 years before. Now when word of this filtered out it caused uproar and following a number of Williams's former neighbours expressing their concerns to him at his constituent surgery, former West Bromwich East MP Peter Snape took up the cause, agreeing that the placing of Williams here was, I quote, crass, insensitive and dangerous. Following the discussions, the MP wrote to the then Home Secretary Michael Howard, pointing out these, I quote, real and understandable concerns, giving a full background to the gravity of the crimes and the trauma they'd caused, and asking whether a 15-year detention was an adequate response to these events, and what assurances he could give to his constituents that Williams would not be allowed to return to the West Bromwich area. Years later, Lord Snape recalled, In return, I received a letter to say that Mr Williams was at that time resident in a bail hostel prior to his release. The letter went on to say he would not be allowed to return to the West Bromwich area and that his release was based on medical evidence that he was no longer deemed to be a danger to the public. Judith Chambers, who'd been gravely wounded in the shootings, said at the time, I have nightmares almost every night, even now. I don't find it hard to recall the events of that night because it's been with me all my life. It's left me with a deep feeling of guilt because I survived and others died, including my next-door neighbour Iris Burkett, who was my first cousin. Someday, someone will be sorry that Williams was let out. It could happen again. If he ever got his hands on another gun, I dread to think what the consequences might be. After this public outcry about his release, Williams was moved later in 1994 to a £26,000 a year privately run residential home in Thlis Machion near the village of Hentland in North Wales, only about 20 miles or so from where I'm from. From here he began a relationship with a woman, Beverly Stevens, whom he married in 1996, the same year that the daughter Amy was born. The family moved several times across England over the following years, including spells living in Kidderminster, Shropshire and Worcestershire, but by 2005, Williams had moved them back closer to his roots, to the Birmingham area of Hall Green. And this time there was no public outcry, because Barry Kenneth Williams was living well under the radar by that point, and indeed he could have remained well under it, perhaps even still to this day. Because several years before, just before he'd met and married Beverly, Barry Williams had changed his name and nobody knew they had a mass killer living in their midst. Why would they? They knew their neighbour as Harry Streeter. And 36 years later, the three frightening things were he still had a problem with noise and he still had a problem with neighbours. It took PC York just digging that little deeper, wondering about his relentless obsession to approach Street's GP, who informed her that Harry Street had formerly been one Barry Kenneth Williams. Further checks revealed the horrifying events and crimes Williams had committed and their background, leading to PC York warning Warren and Cherie Smith and their children that they may be in serious danger from Street and a warrant for his arrest on charges of harassment being issued. And the third scary thing? When the warrant was executed, it was just 10 days before what would have been the 35th anniversary of his night of slaughter in 1978. And leading up to that anniversary, he had himself another grudge. 
He'd begun making weapons and ammunition and had built a bomb. On Monday the 6th of October 2014, at Birmingham Crown Court, Harry Street admitted one charge of making an improvised explosive device between January the 1st and October the 14th, 2013. Three further charges of possessing a firearm with intent to endanger life and one of possession of homemade bullets with intent to endanger life were ordered to lie on file by High Court Judge Mr Justice Blair. Prosecutors accepted Street's not guilty plea to four other charges as he'd already admitted three separate counts of possessing prohibited firearms including pistols and a revolver as well as a further charge of causing his neighbour Warren Smith to be in fear of violence between December 2009 and October 16, 2013. Prosecutor Michael Duck QC told the court the Crown takes the view that the interests of the protection of the public are adequately served by the acceptance of the pleas. It is quite apparent, and would have been the Crown's case, that this man commits offences of the utmost seriousness when he is mentally unwell. The overwhelming balance of medical opinion is that this is a significant problem that will take a very significant time to resolve, if it ever does. The court then heard an account of the 1978 shootings, his incarceration and his release, his name change, and how from 2007, Street had called the police on numerous occasions to complain about his next-door neighbours. Mr Duck continued, It became something of a preoccupation of Mr Street's, as indeed it had many years before. The complaints became more extravagant as time moved on, having a significant impact on the Smiths' lives. He then went on to catalogue the lengths and actions that Street would go to in what, the prosecutor described, he believed was a battle for supremacy, hurling golf balls and bread onto the Smiths' conservatory roof, chucking rubbish into their garden, the drilling, constant calling police for all sorts, threatening them with guns, you know, the bloody list goes on, doesn't it? It had culminated in the Smiths' moving house in July 2013, but Street tracing them to their new home, and on October the 10th of the previous year, a snarling street knocking on the door and telling Cherie Smith, I found you, I know where you live, you cannot escape me. Later on October the 10th, Warren Smith and his brother went to their former road to speak to Street about this, who then called police and claimed when they arrived that he had merely been congratulating Mrs Smith on the moving house. But it was this that led to the whole web unravelling. Mr Duck continued, Because of inquiries about Mr Street's behaviour, one of the police officers who attended on that occasion caused some inquiries to be made about his potential background. The response she got indicated that her instincts were right. Bloody right they were, right? Mr Duck went on, Officers then searched the premises at Hazelgrove Road, and the results of that search were in the context of this case, revealing and frightening. Of course, having discovered these items, there was further investigation into Harry Street and the reality of him having been Barry Williams in 1978 then emerged. The methodology mirrored what he did in 1978. Paul Lewis QC, defending, could not offer anything in mitigation, 
Having taken into account the overwhelming likelihood that Street would again be detained indefinitely in a secure hospital, following his past history and guilty plea, and simply told the court, The offending is linked to his mental health. This is not a man who commits crime when he is well. There was obviously a time when he was deemed well enough to be released. Well, he certainly wasn't well enough to be on the streets furthermore. Sentencing Street for the second time in his life to indefinite detention under the Mental Health Act, Mr Justice Blair added, The material before the court suggests that at that time, monitoring did not show evidence of relapse of symptoms of mental illness. However, from perhaps as early as 2007, the defendant became obsessed with his next-door neighbours believing they were pursuing a campaign of harassment against him. This was similar behaviour to that which had preceded the terrible events of the 26th of October 1978. However, he added, paranoid or delusional thinking on the defendant's part was not detected at that time. He ordered that his sentencing remarks be made available to anyone involved in Street's future care, explaining, I do so to record the narrow margin by which the risk of a further tragedy was averted. The effect of these orders is that the defendant may never be released. Street showed no emotion whatsoever as he was led out of the dock to return to Ashworth Hospital, where he'd been being treated for the past year. In the public gallery to watch Street locked away once again was 53-year-old Jill Burkett, at the time Jill Dudley, who'd seen her family killed in 1978 and had been severely wounded by Williams, as he was then who hugged the victim of the most recent campaign of intimidation, Warren Smith, as Street was taken down to the cells. They had met and become friends through the Witness Support Programme. West Midlands Police announced after the trial concluded that a multi-agency public protection arrangement serious case review would be launched in January of the following year, with spokesperson Detective Chief Superintendent Kenny Bell, head of the Force CID, saying, there was no trace of Harry Street on any police systems, but it is thanks to the tenacity of a local police officer who, when the harassment escalated, made extensive checks which led her to Street's GP and his true identity. Immediate steps have already been taken to ensure that all relevant information is shared and is accessible. A MAPA serious case review has been commissioned and I am determined that lessons will be learned. Lessons like why someone who'd slaughtered five people and wounded several others was allowed out of detention in 1994 was able to drop off the radar, change his identity and start offending again or why the mental health trust charged with his care failed to recognise warnings and tell police and why there was no trace in West Midlands Police's records of Harry Street because of his past and why it took so long for them to realise Harry Street and Barry Williams were one and the same person. Warren Smith said, We have lived the plot of a horror movie. It was like he was planning a reenactment of his killings, but perfectly, this time with us as his victims. The 35th anniversary was just days after his arrest. We recently met Jill Burkett, the survivor of the family that he targeted in 1978, and the similarities in the way he treated us are chilling. All along, we just thought he was a nuisance neighbour, but it seems he wouldn't have been happy until he put us in our graves like he did with her family. We feel let down. 
that monster should never have been released. We're lucky to be alive. Now it transpired later that Street had also targeted other neighbours in the road for harassment, albeit not to the extent he had with the Smith family. A neighbour who lived two doors down from Street, Melissa Brown, recalled that five years previously, Street had climbed into her garden while pointing what appeared to be a rifle at her and two friends who were staying with her, saying, At the time, we thought it was a toy gun and he was just a mad old man, but looking back, it's so scary. He pointed the gun at us and was banging his head saying things like, You don't know what I can do. In the years following this incident, Miss Brown and her mother Teresa were repeatedly threatened by Street, who they reported several times to their local council. Following the verdict, she spoke of her anger at how the authorities had allowed a convicted killer to live within the community for so long undetected. It gives me nightmares, she said. Marza Ahmed, who lived next door to Street on the other side, told the Birmingham Mail, We tried to be a friendly neighbour to him. At times he would be fine, but other times very moody. I have four kids and he would complain sometimes that they were making a noise. It is terrifying to think that he is a convicted killer who shot his neighbours dead. It could have been us. It's something that people who knew Barry Williams before the massacre in 1978 and those people affected directly by his actions had long considered and had plenty to say about it when the mental scars were reopened 35 years later. Antonio Di Maria, the son of Williams's final two victims, told the Birmingham Mail following the verdict, I do not usually agree with the death sentence because you have to be 100% certain and mistakes can and have been made. But in this case, I wanted him strung up for what he did, and I still do. And now we're told that he'd probably been planning to do the same thing again 35 years later. What happened that day in 1978 has never left us, and it never will. Every day is the same. You think about it all the time, and you think about how it's affected every single member of our family. All I hope now is that I can outlive him, and when he does die, I intend to find out where he's buried, so that I can have a party on his grave. He's robbed my family and other families of so much, and I now just want to see him dead. Graham Chambers, the son of Judith and Joseph Chambers who Williams had attempted to kill, commented, I have a recurring nightmare. There's a banging on the front door. I open it to be faced by Williams and he blasts me in the face with a gun. He's haunted my dreams. When cops came knocking on the door in October last year to alert me to the arrest, I couldn't believe he'd been released and was living on our doorstep under a new name. When they told me they'd found weapons at his home and he'd been threatening his neighbours, my heart nearly stopped. It brought it all back to me. I think he may have been days, perhaps hours, away from carrying out another killing spree. Thank God a police officer made investigations into his past. In my opinion, that has certainly saved many lives. He should never have been released in the first place, and to let him slip under the radar for so long is shocking. Now he's behind bars for a second time. I hope the lessons have finally been learned. Jill Burkett, meanwhile, has never forgotten a second of the horror of that evening in 1978, for she'd lived in fear of Williams ever since. Following Street's incarceration, 
she gave a recollection of the evening he slaughtered her family. I was doing my college work sitting in the lounge with my mother on an ordinary Thursday evening just after tea. My brother was in the drive working on his car with my dad. Suddenly my brother burst in clutching his arm. He was shocked and wide-eyed as he told us that Williams had shot him and my dad. I tried to scream whilst running through the door to go and help my dad. I just opened the front door with my mother right behind me. She'd picked up the phone to call the police I guess. When Williams entered the house through the back door, shooting me in the back as I tried to go outside. I was shot once under my arm as I turned, in my lower body, on each arm and once in the leg. I was lying bleeding and incapacitated in the doorway, while behind me I could hear my mother gasping for breath as she must have been shot too. As I lay there, I could hear her breathing getting more and more faint until it was no more. Not able to stand, I desperately crawled just outside in the doorway while fighting to stay conscious. As I lay there, more shots echoed in the darkness and as my front window shattered, my brother came crashing through, his body resting motionless beside me. He'd been hiding behind the settee. Williams must have just walked past my mother and I after shooting us and shot him. I passed out for a short time, but when I came around, I struggled to move and somehow reached to the driveway. I prayed my father was alive but scrambled further down the drive in hope of getting help. I became aware of a crowd gathering at the end of the drive. One man came forward to reassure me that an ambulance was on its way as my dad had been taken in the only ambulance that had been immediately sent to the scene. The situation was greatly miscalculated. Although I'd lost a lot of blood and my injuries were very severe, Somehow the brilliant doctors managed to save my life, although they did say that I may not be able to have any children. Judith was also very badly injured, but she survived. Unreal words those, aren't they, eh? Can you imagine? But the amount of fear that Jill must have had to live with following that night, the amount to which Williams had destroyed and overshadowed her life, I think is summed up best with the following quote, following Williams's 1994 release. My auntie telephoned to say that the press had called her to comment on the release of Barry Williams later that day in June 1994. My blood ran cold as my mind raced with all the horrors filling my head. Oh no, he's going to come and kill me and my family, I thought. Jill's mind was soon to be put at ease, however. Just over two months after returning to high security Ashworth Hospital indefinitely, on December the 24th, 2014, Harry Street, formerly Barry Williams, collapsed after suffering a massive cardiac arrest and despite being rushed to the infirmary wing, was pronounced dead at 9.49am. He was 70 years old. Speaking to the Shropshire Express and Star after news of Street's death was revealed, Jill Burkett told the paper how Warren Smith had telephoned her personally at 9pm on Christmas Eve to tell her that Street, or Williams as Jill has always referred to him as, had died. She said, It was always my fear that one day would be released again and hunt me down. No one likes to hear of anyone dying, but in his case it was best for everyone. I just want it all behind me now and I feel it finally can be. I'm not seeking anything out of this now, I'm just seeking peace. Warren feels free as well. Nothing actually happened to him, but if Williams had come out, 
he would have been the focus of his anger. The devil has now gone back to hell. Isn't it an unreal story or what this one, eh? The tale of Barry Williams or Harry Street, wherever you want to call him, it certainly raises food for thought also, I thought, doesn't it? Fortunately, he was intercepted in 2013 before he could do a repeat of his 1978 horrifics because it seems certain that he was building up to something like that. If you ever wanted an example of a slow burning but definitely burning fuse, then look no further. How on earth this guy was allowed to drop off the face of the earth following his release from Broadmoor or Ashworth or wherever he was, change his name and disappear, well, there's some clear failings in the case here because it just shouldn't happen, should it? But sadly it does. We've seen the same in cases such as, back in series 1, the case of Glyn Dix or Peter Bryan's exploits last series. Sometimes people can fool the authorities, can't they? and they go on to commit horrendous further crimes. Now Street, let's call him that because it was the name he took to his grave after all, hadn't come to the attention of authorities in the 13 years before he and his family had moved to Hall Green, at least not that is reported anyway. So for that period, was he cured as demons kept at bay by antipsychotic medication? But then if a mental state is fragile enough to begin with anyway, to shatter and massacre five people in an hour, shoot at people's houses and throw firebombs and fire at children, then I ask, and perhaps it's controversial me saying this, but having done that, to what state can it ever be repaired or will it always be fragile? Was it always in Barry Williams regardless of a name change and fresh start? regardless of how long he spent in a secure hospital. I mean, once you've done it, and killing five people is emphatic, arguably, it's always in you to kill, isn't it? And what same heading back down this potential road, perhaps an even more terrifying one? Because this time around, he wasn't just buying under-the-counter guns, he was adapting weapons, making homemade ammunition, he'd even made a bloody bomb with a working fuse. Now combine all of this and imagine what Street's mental state would have been like in the days building up to what would have been the 35th anniversary of the defining day of his life and how fixated he was on the Smiths. I don't know about panic on the streets of London, but it would have certainly been panic on the streets of Hall Green indeed. Eh? I found this an absolutely remarkable, horrific story and unbelievably one that's long forgotten. I'm sure there are people there still to this day in the West Bromwich area who lived through the horror of that night who have never for a second forgotten the events. I mean, how would you? But it's not a case that comes to the forefront of your mind, this one, is it? It certainly isn't one that I was familiar with at all. Mention mass gun crimes in the UK and you have the canonical three, Hungerford, Dunblane, Cumbria. Following Hungerford, there was a crackdown on the gun laws and compared to other countries, they are relatively strict here in the UK, but just not enough to have prevented Dunblane nine years later. So they were then examined and codified again, but not enough to stop Derek Bird's rampage through Cumbria 10 years ago. And if you go back to before Hungerford, then following Barry Williams's massacre nine years before that, should they have been examined more stringently back then? And maybe, just maybe, have prevented all of the canonical three from happening. Who knows? 
but it is certainly food for thought, isn't it? There is more chance of me growing another hole in my arse than us solving the gun debate though, sadly, isn't there? But what I will personally say is this. I spent several years armed each day as part of the role that I performed in the military. And whilst I took it very seriously and always had a complete understanding of the responsibility, I was also aware of the focus that it places upon you because you have a weapon in your possession. Categorically, I'd personally never want to be armed up again. Enjoy TJ Hooker or the professionals when you're a youngster, but leave it all behind, eh? Who needs an arsehole in their home? And especially when having one leads to carnage such as we've heard of here. I hope that you've found the tale entitled Noise an interesting and informative one. As I said, it was originally going to be a third of a similar tales planned for a themed episode, so don't be knocked down with a feather if you see that trilogy become another double episode somewhere down the line, because we will cover the other buggers, I'm telling you. I would as always love to hear your thoughts and impressions concerning the tales should you wish to share them, which you can do as ever in the active episode thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, but it's not just limited to there of course, you can get in touch through any of the show's social media, that's fine, or you can email me, you can even do a bloody macaroni picture and send it me if you like, that would be awesome. That would nearly be as awesome as the Ken Barlow and Deirdre framed picture that was posted up in the show's Facebook group as Chazza Shop Shonk that I would love someone to grab and send me. Because to be honest, I think it's tantalising just posting that and not immediately grabbing it for the show. So in fact, I've decided to do another show grab bag for whoever can send the best Ken Barlow crap to me. I'll make it a good one with a fair few goodies put in. I'll even chuck in a one-of-a-kind True Crime Enthusiast t-shirt, a signed full eight-part complete maniac script, and even a Welsh flag with inscribed with some of the show's sayings that I notice have become popular. How does that sound? But only for the best Ken Shonk. So let's say, shall we decide 30th of September? How's that? With that, it's about time to let you good folks go and catch up with the rest of your day or your night, and I best go crack on and get some more true crime in under my belt. I thank you so much for joining me here today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing all you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now. <laughs>